0: Presentation Skills for Design Students, Episode 3. Hello and welcome to Presentation Skills for Design Students. I'm Christina Cantors and this is the podcast dedicated to helping design students everywhere improve their presentation and communication skills. It doesn't matter if you do industrial design, urban planning, architecture, landscape, whatever your creative field, there's something we can all do to become confident, creative communicators. So get ready to take your next presentation to a whole new level. Yes, it's episode three. Welcome back, everyone. And today I am so excited because today is my very first interview. Yes, I have an expert communicator in the house. Actually, not not really in the house, but you know, you get get what I mean. He's in the Skype house anyway. His name is Dr. Steve Carey and he's an expert in communications. But before we get to the interview, let's have a listen to this week's story from studio.
1: Hello, my name's Tom and I'm an ex-interior design student at Swinburne University. In third year, we had a furniture design subject, but we were asked to create and design a piece of furniture that was suitable for a 120 kilogram human being to sit on. And at the start of the semester, I specifically remember our teacher, who's this um, big older gent, to make sure that it was robust enough to support his weight. When it, time, when it became time to present, I remember him sitting on my friend um, Sally's chair that was this beautiful work of art that she'd spent weeks and weeks hand-cutting. And I remember the moment came where he reminded poor Sally that he was going to test it and he did it with vigour and essentially flat-packed it and proved to everyone there that it was flat-packable. And um, Sally had to redo the whole subject because she uh, failed the class.
0: Wow, that is a crazy story. Thank you so much, Tom, for sharing that with us. And I guess the moral there would be just follow the brief, especially if you've got a 120-kilo man threatening to sit on your project. Of course, if you would like to share your story on the podcast, head over to com slash story. That's com slash story. And remember, it's got to be 90 seconds or less. I think Tom's story there was just under 90 seconds. So that's what you've got to aim for. And now let's get into the interview. I'm very excited to have on the show today, Dr. Steve Carey. Now, Steve is an expert in communications. He's the director of studies at the Academy of Hypnotic Science in Melbourne. He also helps students become better communicators through teaching business and professional communications at Melbourne University. Steve actually taught me that communication and presenting are skills that can be learned. So I think you'll learn a lot from him as well. Plus, we've got a great challenge of the week for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little clue. Steve's going to show you a very simple way to make people like you more. Yes, how to make people like you more. And don't worry, it doesn't require bribery, flattery, or sexual favours. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
2: That's my pleasure.
0: Now, I've, I've given our listeners a, a brief overview of what your background is and what it is that you do, but I'm just fascinated with how you're a hypnotherapist. Can you tell us a bit more about that and what you do?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, you're fascinated, I'm fascinated <laughs> as well. If I'd if you'd told me a few years, years ago this was where I was going to end up, I think I would have been as surprised as, as you are, Christina. Um, I, I think for me the... One of the connecting threads is probably a love of language and communication, Um, and after all, hypnotherapy is viewed from one angle, just a particularly interesting specialist uh, use of language and communication, I suppose. I kind of got into it through um, neuro-linguistic programming, which is a, I don't know quite what you'd call it, a... A program or a model of the world which looks at uh, excellence and and uh, attempts to model um, excellence wherever it finds it but it's sometimes used because of because of that as a sort of soft skill for salespeople and at the time I was doing some business consulting so I kind of ran into it that way and I'm the sort of person that likes to trace things back to their to their origins to their roots and that the roots of neuro linguistic programming is one Milton Erickson, who is the, I suppose you'd call him the sort of the granddaddy or the godfather of modern clinical hypnotherapy. And he seemed to me to be a a thoroughly interesting and engaging character. And it kind of brought me up quite sharply against one of my own uh, intellectual prejudices, I suppose, because up till that time, I'd casually dismissed hypnosis as being um, probably, probably nothing to it at all. And I realized that if I didn't know anything about it, it was a bit of an intellectually um, inconsistent position to hold, to have a strong opinion about something that I knew nothing about. So I started looking into this, uh, went and saw somebody had an experience of hypnosis, was kind of blown away by what I experienced and decided to, decided to pursue it further. And from that, um, the place where I was studying, the Academy of Hypnotic Science, uh, came up for sale while I was studying and I thought, it seemed too good an opportunity to miss so there that's how i got from there to here
0: wow so so you run the academy uh what what so do you actually have patients who you do hypnotherapy sessions with
2: i do i don't see too many these days um not because I don't enjoy it, because I do enjoy it enormously, and I find it very rewarding. But it's, um, it's, you know, my main job is to is to run the the academy and uh, to look after all of our students. Yes, we so we train people to become hypnotherapists.
0: Wow! Can we do some hypnotherapy on the show?
2: Uh, I guess we could. I guess we could. Uh, as I was saying, that you know, from one point of view, hypnotherapy is simply a um, a, a, a specialist application of communication. And uh, one of the things that it seeks to do is to draw people's attention, I suppose, to their strengths rather than their weaknesses. Wow. Now, you, most people, I think, know that hypnotherapy these days is often used for things like quitting smoking and losing weight and increasing you know, your attention to your ability to focus and, and things like that. Um, most of the time, if, if you think about something that you would like to change about yourself, not you, Christina, because I know that you're pretty well near perfect as you are, but <laughs> for someone who's who's got something they wanted to change and improve about themselves, um, let's take smoking as an example. People, they they understand very well all of the negative reasons uh, associated with smoking. They know the, the medical implications and they know the quality of life and the cost and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so they're very well rehearsed in all of that. And they're really quite focused on this smoking that they don't want to be doing. Well, as as you can imagine, it turns out that focusing all of your attention on something um, is going to increase it in your awareness. So smokers tend to be very, they, they tend to feel a little bit sort of embarrassed. I think that they're having to resort to a hypnotherapist at all to have to do something that other people seem to be able to do without having to go to a hypnotherapist. So one of the things that a hypnotherapist wants to do, first of all, is to find out what the benefits are of smoking, which usually comes as a bit of a surprise to someone who wants to give up when you ask them, why do you smoke? What's so good about it? And it takes a little bit of digging, but it might be, you know, relieving stress or it might be social um, engagement with other people. Or it might be boredom, whatever it might be. And I suppose one way of thinking about The reason for this is that if you're going to effectively going to bargain with someone's subconscious if they have come across smoking as being something that helps them contain their stress or helps them to feel relaxed or less bored or whatever then the subconscious is going to be very reluctant to let go of something if it's there to do a job whereas if what you're saying is actually maybe you could think of a different way that you could relieve your stress maybe you could go for a nice long walk or do some breathing exercises or some meditation or something then I think uh, at a subconscious level and maybe even at a conscious level you're much more likely to want to let go of the smoking if you know that the job is going to be covered by something else instead but the difference with that approach is that actually you're drawing the person's attention to something they're already capable of doing a positive beneficial thing uh, and you're not nearly so focused on the smoking as as they are does that make sense
0: yeah it does it's like replacing something instead of cutting something out you're finding exactly an alternative right.
2: yeah exactly you're finding an alternative you put that much more succinctly than i could and it's like and some so people,
0: sorry go on
2: and well so your communication is going to be with working with that person and drawing attention to the positives and looking on the bright side if you like so that uh, most of us um, probably have some some habits that we could improve in the way that we communicate, even with ourselves. Uh, most of us have got a voice going on in our head, which can often be very critical and very undermining. And because it's been there pretty much all of our lives, we're, we're usually not even aware that it's there. It takes a little bit of effort to actually kind of get in touch with it and to start to hear it. And when you do start to hear it and you begin to realize that all of your efforts to do something may be... Um, being undermined or at least being held back by a voice which is telling you that you can't do it, that you, how could you possibly deserve this, you're not beautiful enough, you're not bright enough, you're not rich enough, you're not popular enough, all of those things that um, uh, there are other, and there are other pressures external as well because of course the whole advertising industry is kind of predicated upon making us feel a need for something that probably in absolute terms we don't actually need. So that there's a, really what you're helping people to do is to become aware of that, become aware of the, the negative language and the negative uh, self-talk that we have and, and help them to develop something which is much more forgiving and encouraging.
0: Yes, and I think a lot of people have that negative voice within them when they're about to give a presentation or something like that. People put themselves down or tell themselves that they're not very good at it or that no one wants to listen to them. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. And and, uh, I think further to that is the, what you might call the Steve Carey theory of the tragedy of the human condition, which is that we compare our insides with other people's outsides. um, And particularly so when it comes to making a public presentation, by which I mean, we assume that someone who looks confident and behaves in a confident manner must be confident when it's someone else. However, when when it comes to ourselves, we know how we actually feel, so we feel that even if we appear to be confident and relaxed, we're still nervous so that there's a kind of contradiction there because with with somebody if you saw somebody who looked confident, you would say they were confident. However, when it's yourself, you say no, I'm just pretending I'm just putting on a brave front. Well, how do we know that the other person isn't doing the same thing and and furthermore, I think we 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 tend to forget that if you're about to make a presentation, in most circumstances, the people around you are desperate for you to do a good job. There is nothing more excruciating than sitting there while someone struggles with a, with a presentation. And you really feel for that person. At least most decent people do. And if you're going to be, uh, allow your, uh, you, you know, your experience to be founded upon the people who are not decent, the people who want to see you fail, well, that's kind of a choice that you're making and probably not a very wise one. So to, to, to become more consciously aware that the people around us actually do want us to succeed and are, are kind of rooting for us can, for some people, be quite helpful because I think that you know, they are their own worst enemies. They're more critical than, than their audience tends to be, which is not a great start point. And it means that you're then focusing on yourself. Well, if you're focusing on yourself, you're not so much focusing on your audience. You're not focusing on your presentation and on your externals. You're focusing on what's inside you and conversely if you can bring yourself to uh to know that you're well prepared to know that the people want you to succeed and to know that if you look and behave confidently then that will actually give you a, a sense of of confidence then i think that can ha- help to reverse that sort of negative flow and turn it into a much more positive one I, I i would though offer um a postscript to that which i must admit um which i must admit to which is this I really enjoy speaking in public, and I find it very easy. so I'm, i I may sound a bit glib when I talk in those terms, and I know that people who have have reservations about it or or indeed blind terror when it comes to speaking in public. Uh, I know that 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 afford, that explanation that I just gave probably sounds a little bit kind of good in theory but very difficult to put into practice.
0: Yes, and of course there is so much involved with delivering a good speech and a good presentation. Um, there's there's just so much to it and which brings me to something that you first introduced to me when when I was one of your students and you taught me that there are two things that you really need to know about any topic or subject and (laughs) I think if you could explain to the cool kids listening what are the two things that we really need to know about communication skills
2: Excellent. I'm glad you reminded me of that. I haven't used that for for quite a while, actually, which is unusual in my um, small armoury of anecdotes because most of them get overly used and repeated too much. Yes, this goes back to uh, I read this somewhere that um, somebody came up with this theory that that virtually any topic can be reduced to two things. Um, And the example that was that was given is that the two things you need to know about um, fighting war. Is that you should uh, hang on? I can't remember any of these.
0: <laughs> I've got Can one on for you. I've, I've got I've got one for you. Um, Excellent. The two things about writing: number one, yes. include what's necessary, and number two, leave everything else out. Ah,
2: yes, good. And and the two things about communication remind me.
0: Uh, I think it was number one is both sides are educating each other all the time. Ah, yes. And number two is the meaning of a message is in the effect it has. Excellent. I'd like to just focus on point number two for, for yeah. the time being. Can you explain what that means?
2: That the meaning of a message is the effect that it has? Yes. Uh, this, this, by the way, comes from neuro-linguistic programming that I was referring to before. Or at least that's where I encountered it. I'm sure it's not an entirely original thought. It's simply the observation that we tend to work with the assumption that we are communicating perfectly competently and that if if there's ever a misunderstanding, it's because of the other person that they didn't understand what we said. Now, we may not put it in quite broadly those terms, but generally that's the underlying assumption. Just to give you a minor example, it it occurred to me recently that um, I I was falling prey to the same uh, error myself. Cause I couldn't get the kids to do the dishwasher <laughs> which is something that almost anyone who's a parent will sympathize with and I'd kind of um, started coming up with all kind of uh, explanations that usually depended upon the kids you know that kids today I don't know that you know they've, they've got it too easy they don't know the when they're well off and so on and I'd entirely discounted the fact that actually um, if I put the responsibility for that communication where it properly belongs with myself then I probably hadn't exhausted all the possibilities of ways of persuading them and encouraging them to do the dishwasher. The benefit of this, the benefit of thinking in terms of the meaning of a message is the effect that it has, is that it actually gives you somewhere to go because otherwise you end up, you rapidly end up in a cul-de-sac. I tried to get to explain something to you, Christina. You didn't understand. That must be because you are deficient in your understanding. Well, That's fine up to a certain point, but there's nowhere to go from there because I can't change your understanding, your level of understanding. And in fact, the only way in which I could change your level of understanding would be to rephrase what it was I was trying to explain to you such that you were able to understand it. So if if we bear in mind that we are ourselves responsible for the quality of our communication, not in any sort of blaming way, but simply in a taking responsibility that we have chosen a particular way to express something. If it hasn't got us the result that we want, the best way to achieve the result that we want is to amend the way that we're communicating.
0: So how, how would this apply to a student who's presenting their work to their tutor or to a group of fellow students?
2: Yes, that's, that, that would be a, a good example. Um, I guess one of the one of the assumptions that people often seem to have about communicating, especially to a group, or in a situation such as you suggest where you're attempting to present something to a tutor is somehow to imagine that it doesn't require rehearsal or practice or um, an investment of time. Now, when you think about that, that that seems an odd kind of a thought. And I suppose it's based on the fact that we've been talking all of our lives and it seems so easy. And also because people who are very, very good communicators look as if it It is easy. But it would be a rare kind of a skill that didn't take some rehearsal and honing. You know, you watch somebody playing tennis, and you don't usually tend to think they've just walked onto the tennis court, never picked up a racket, and suddenly they're, you know, they're mixing it with the best of them. Or even as something as mundane as riding a bicycle or swimming. We're quite comfortable with the thought that those things take a lot of effort and a lot of investment to get right. And then we come to a situation where you're presenting somebody to a group or, sorry, you're presenting something to a group or to a person that you're aiming to influence. And you assume that it's just going to turn out right. Well, why would that be the case? So it actually makes sense, first of all, to be clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve and then to invest some time in preparing it and rehearsing it. And you will usually find almost anyone will find that they've got people who are very sympathetic and quite happy to help with that and to be an audience so that you could prepare for something by saying, look, would you mind just letting me present this to you a few times and giving me some feedback? And most people are very happy to do that. And, and usually in the process, a couple of things happen. That person is putting themselves in the mind of the person or the group that you're that you're wanting to present to. And will identify things that won't occur to you because, of, you know, two heads are better than one. But the other benefit, of course, is that in the process of that, you're then actually practicing the skill or the presentation that you're wanting to to make. So you can imagine that if, if you made a presentation 10 or 20 times, it would be surprising on the 10th or the 20th time if it wasn't a good deal more fluent and better than it was the first time. Hmm. So, why you would expect it to come out well the first time without having prepared for it is is a little surprising just in itself, I guess.
0: Can I just add here? If if um, I, I I strongly encourage people to practice their presentations. I think uh, personally, it makes it a lot easier for me. But in, with with a, a design student who's presenting something that they've been just completely immersed in all semester, and yeah. they've just been thinking nothing but about nothing but this particular project. I think a really good way to to work out if you can communicate your design effectively is to present it to your grandma or someone who has absolutely no clue about what you've been working on some, or someone who has no idea about design. If you, can, if you can get your message across to them and have the intended effect on them, then then you're on the money in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I I think that's that's a great suggestion, Christina. I I think we tend to um we tend to to discount sometimes the the benefit of being able to explain something to someone who doesn't know the first thing about it. It's almost as if we're assuming that it has to be reduced to such a simplistic level that that it's that it's virtually meaningless and I I strongly feel almost the opposite. I think if you've got a message that you're passionate about, and that is worth communicating, um, being able to explain it to someone who doesn't know the first principle about the subject that you're talking about is almost the test of how well you've thought it through. And that, that clarity is not, um, it's not, it's not a fault. It's actually a real virtue. And that if you, if you have created something which is so clear that it can be understood by your grandma or by someone who doesn't know all of the theory that, that lies behind it all, then I think you've done a really good job of communicating it.
0: Yes, and it, of course, it forces you to to um, not use any jargon and things like that. It's yes, a, it's a really good yeah, it's a really good thing to practice. Now, Steve, I'd like to uh, quickly just talk about rapport. Can you can you explain to us what rapport is and why it's important?
2: Yes, the uh, the starting point for this might be a, a, a recent fairly. Um, startling scientific discovery actually there was um, um, a a, a few years ago that yes a few years ago some neuroscientists were um, doing some research with a with a monkey that had had um, uh, its brain cells kind of um, wired up I mean it, it wasn't an unpleasant experience for the monkey. It just had some electrodes uh, put around its head. and they were attempting to um, identify particular brain cells or neurons um, that were being used in particular situations. So for example when the monkey was actually grasping a banana. and uh, eventually they found the brain cells that were involved in this. Uh, and then something rather interesting happened because one of the, one of the assistants, one of the researchers, noticed that actually when she went to go and pick up a banana herself, the same neurons fired in the monkey's brain as when the monkey was actually grasping the banana for itself. Now, this was entirely unexpected and actually quite exciting at the time because it actually started to give a um, a kind of theoretical or a, a, a research basis for something that we all kind of intuitively know that you can feel somebody else's pain that you can empathize we, it's, and it's clearly not just humans who can do this because it was a monkey doing it in that situation that that we are social animals that monkeys are social animals and humans are social animals and we are heavily incentivized to be good at being social and one of the best ways of being social is to be able to really literally feel the pain or the pleasure that somebody else is experiencing now, from a strictly logical point of view that that isn't an absolute necessity of existence. It could be that you simply make a calculation about somebody else's experience and you decide whether or not it's going to be a good one or a bad one based on a you know on a, on an assumption that if touching a hot thing hurts you, then it would hurt them. But it turns out that it actually goes a good deal deeper than that, and that you you probably know in in, in your own life you know some people who are just seem to be naturally gifted in this way they seem to be able to just to hit it off with other people very, very well, they seem to, excuse me, they seem to be um, very congruent in their communication and they seem to be able to um, convey to someone else that they're really present, if you like, uh, and other people who who may well be just as present are, not, so, are n- not nearly so good at demonstrating it, that they appear distracted or they appear uninterested and you're never quite sure whether they actually are or not, but they're certainly giving you the impression that they've got better things to do than to listen to you.
0: And I think the good thing about uh, building, well, the whole idea about building rapport with someone is that you can actually consciously do it.
2: Yes, that's, that's right, that it is a skill like any other. And it's not very helpful to think that this is something that we're just born with. Whether that's true or not, it's not very helpful. It's much more helpful for you to think, to become aware, first of all, of how good you are at it or not. Now, um, that's quite difficult just by itself because it, it, if if it involves a kind of blindness, you know, that people who are not very good at this aren't aware of that because if they were aware of it, they would work on it. So you, you kind of, I suppose you need to pay some close attention to whether you happen to be good at it, and maybe ask some people close to you whether you are or not, whether you um, you do a particularly good job of of paying close attention to someone when you're communicating with them. And then you can start to work on that skill and you can actually, I mean, you can think, It's it's quite easy to think about the things that are characteristic about someone who is paying very close attention, who is demonstrating rapport, which is making good quality eye contact, which is not the same as staring fixedly at someone, but having a good um, understanding for what in our culture uh, would constitute good natural eye contact, which would be keeping contact for maybe five or six seconds at a time and for something which is actually uh, you may remember this christina when we when we did it it's actually people very much enjoy this this exercise but it's something that you can do for yourself that it turns out that one of the things that really demonstrates rapport is a matching of body language now we all do this subconsciously we all do this automatically some of us better than others but you can actually practice this for yourself and just find someone that you're um, communicating with. It might be your partner or it might be your grandma that you mentioned before, or it might be work colleagues. And just notice how if you begin to um, echo their posture, for example, so that if they're standing there with, uh, you know, leaning over on one side in, next to the coffee machine, that if you actually match or mirror that, that sort of posture, then almost instantly, you're going to find that they feel more comfortable, and you actually feel more comfortable. Now, unless you actually start trying this out for yourselves, you're going to you you might have to take this for granted. But believe me, it can be very very powerful. And you, and if you start then playing around with it, and you can notice that actually, if you then deliberately unmatch your body language to the other person, that they will start there at, at a subconscious level. It's usually unconscious. They will they will start to um, to be aware of that and to feel as if the rapport is slipping away. Now, this all sounds very um, calculated and, and almost um, uh, malevolent, and it really isn't, because after all, all you're doing is honing your skills to demonstrate that you're really present for someone, that you're actually really listening intently to what they're saying.
0: And that and just making- sorry,
2: so, and that ultimately yes, makes sorry, them that
0: makes them like you more right
2: yes yes and and uh, it tend it, it, it doesn't work if you're then going to start lying and cheating you know it's not it's not very good for manipulating people which is sometimes the concern that uh, that sometimes people express about this that you can somehow worm your way into someone's affections by being able to mirror and match their co- their body language well you know people still pretty quickly rumble if you're not um,
0: a decent human
2: if you're if you're not a decent human or if you're actually just pretending to be nice and, and actually you're you're horrible so it's it, it's it's really not going to be used if you're going to be useful if you're wanting to manipulate people but if you're wanting to to increase your abilities at uh, rapport, then those two things eye contact and body language um, will rapidly improve your ability quite markedly
0: you know I have tried this actually just mirroring and matching people, and you think to yourself oh, are they going to notice that I'm drinking <laughs> from my glass at the same time as them and then crossing my arms and then uncrossing them and then shifting my weight from one side to another? But I've never had anyone pull me up on it and say, what are you doing? You know, why, are you, why are you mirroring me? People don't actually notice because they're not paying attention to it. And, That's um, right. You,
2: yes, you become quite self-conscious about it at, at, at first and you think, as you say, that uh, it's so exaggerated that everyone must be noticing you doing it, but, but very rarely would that actually be the case
0: mm. and, and of um, course you
2: you, you you if you think about um really good examples of natural rapport i suppose the absolute quintessential one is a mother and her baby a newborn baby you know a, a baby can really only see it about when it's born and about the distance that a baby is held by its mother from its from her own eyes you know and you 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 see a mother and a baby together and they are perfectly in sync they are you know they will blink at the same rate they will they will smile at the same things you know they're they're really sending a lot of messages backwards and forwards or a more um commonplace one i suppose would be to hang around the um uh the bars and the pubs on a friday evening after work and just notice people um who are you know getting off together that 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 on a date you can tell when a date is going well you can watch people doing it they're they start to mirror and match their body language. They're gazing into each other's eyes. They do that thing that you just mentioned of drinking at the same rate and at the same time. And actually, when the date is going really well, then they will even synchronize their breathing and their heart rate. So this, this is not an artificial thing. This is something that we all do subconsciously anyway. But it is something that some people seem to be better at than others. So, you know, if, if, you, if you find out that this is something that you could improve on, why not have a go?
0: Well well I was about to uh, say next actually uh, every each episode steve i give our listeners a challenge of the week so i think this week's challenge a good a good challenge for this week would be to practice mirroring and matching so next time you are speaking with your it doesn't have to be on a date or whatever. It's it's with anyone really. So if you're speaking with your tutor or um, explaining your or practicing explaining your um, design to your grandmother or whatever, you know, practice mirroring and matching their movements and, you know, don't, don't feel self-conscious about it. They're probably not going to pick it up, like I said before. Um, And just, just try doing that and see, see what happens and see if, the conversation flows more naturally more naturally if you feel more comfortable. So I think that's a good challenge for you all to practice this week.
2: Absolutely. And, of course, one of the side benefits of that is, even aside from that, in the process of doing that, you're going to be paying a lot closer attention to that person because you're observing how they're, how they're behaving. And that just by itself make, make, makes you a better communicator. But I, I think that would be a great thing to try. And have fun with it. It's not... Uh, You know, it's not a serious, earnest thing that we're doing. You're actually having fun with communicating, which I think is is bound to make you better company just by itself.
0: Mm. Okay. Well, I think we're um, almost at the end of the interview now. I've just got a couple of just quick questions for you, Steve, which will hopefully help the students listening. Can you name for me, we'll list the top three biggest mistakes that students make when delivering presentations?
2: (sighs) Gosh, question without notice. (laughs) The three things that people, um, reading from notes. Okay. And that's because you feel insecure. You're not really feeling in control of your material. Reading from notes means that you're looking down and that you're reading rather than speaking and presenting. That would be one. The second one would be not to smile. That uh, if you smile, the whole world smiles with you and you actually feel better as a result. And then I think the third one would be to um, naturally adopt a posture that you feel comfortable with, but that makes other people feel uncomfortable. And if you're not feeling comfortable speaking, you're going to do things like having your legs crossed even while you're standing up or kind of putting yourself into a defensive posture so your arms might be across your body. You need to practice, and this is somewhere where standing in front of a mirror is a, is a good way to do it. Practice a good, strong, confident pose with your legs legs slightly apart, um, and with your your hands in a, a sort of a powerful posture and an expansive one.
0: Yes. And I've, I've seen that positive body language can really affect your, your mind and your emotions. and It can really help boost your confidence. And I have tried this before by standing in front of a mirror before giving a presentation and standing like Wonder Woman and just (laughs) staring at myself in the mirror, like Wonder Woman for a couple of minutes. And I think it actually works. I think that's a whole nother topic. I'm going to do a whole podcast episode on that uh, further down the track. So yeah, that's that's great. So, so again, they were not using notes. Make sure you smile and then use comfortable body language.
2: Absolutely.
0: Awesome, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing your expert knowledge with us. Thank you. Now, if people want to find out more about you and and your hypnotherapy academy, where can they find you?
2: Uh, I guess the website would be a good place to go, www.academyhypnoticscience.net.
0: Okay, and maybe maybe we'll get you back on the show another time a week and you can hypnotise us all into becoming stellar <laughs> presenters. How does that sound? I forward to it. it. sounds great. <laughs> all right, thanks, Steve. Yes, and there's lots of great stuff there from Dr. Steve Carey. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Now let me know how you go with your mirroring and matching. It's great. You can practise it with anyone, really, and they don't even know that you're doing it unless you make it really obvious. Anyway, check out the show notes at designdrawspeak.com slash 003. That's designdrawspeak.com slash 003. And if you haven't already, head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. You can search for my name, Christina Canters, or you can search for Design Students. You can search for Presentation Skills. It still comes up. And of course, I would love you dearly if you could leave a rating and review. It just helps the podcast get discovered by more people. This has been Presentation Skills for Design Students, helping you become a confident, creative communicator.